Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. William Pickett is Professor of Epidemiology at two universities in Canada, Queen's University and Brock University. He teaches in the field of public health and has a long-standing research program with a focus on violence and injury prevention, rural health and paediatric health. With Dr. Wendy Craig, he leads a survey of the health of young Canadians as part of the Health Behaviour in School-Age Children Network. Dr. Wendy Craig is Professor of Psychology at Queen's University, Canada. She is the co-founder and scientific director of PREVENT. She has transformed the science of bullying and healthy relationships into evidence-based practice. In recognition of her work, she's won numerous awards, such as the Canadian Psychological Association Award for Distinguished Contributions to Community Service. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and was recently awarded the Order of Canada for her work on bullying, victimization and knowledge mobilization. So welcome, Dr. Wendy Craig, Dr. William Pickett. Uh, You're both very welcome to this podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, your work together came to my attention because I noticed that you had done a very recent study on social media and cyberbullying. And I was wondering perhaps if you could, perhaps William, just tell us a little bit about your role in what we know to be the survey of, you know, health behavior in school-aged children, because we're very interested in that survey in Britain. So it's fascinating to speak to someone who's a counterpart in Canada. Well, thanks. Both uh, Dr. Craig, Wendy, and myself have been involved in this international survey for a long time. It's called Health Behavior in School-Aged Children, and it's a survey mainly conducted in Europe, but Canada has been on board for about 30 years. So we helped to run this survey of school children in Canada in its sort of 11 to 15-year-olds, pre-adolescence, adolescence, and we study a range of topics through it. And in this particular one, we had a glance internationally at what was going on in the areas of social media use and some of its more negative effects. So uh, according to that work that you did, I think it was, you know, uh, some of the findings that have come out of it, girls always reporting higher levels of cyberbullying. And one of the things that struck me was that in Canada by age 15, 50% of young people are online virtually all the time. So very intense social media use. Yeah, it's very ubiquitous. There's a lot of variations across the countries, but Certainly, this is a, a fairly normalized behavior. It's not, not all bad. There are very good things attached to social media use in terms of connections with other people and connections with the world and engagement with the world. But there are some concerns, too. 
And some of those concerns, I think, are a preoccupation with social media, feeling bad when children are off it, or getting into conflict with others about it, or problems with time management, and then this issue of cyberbullying. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Wendy, the sort of things that have maybe raised a few little red flags? Well, I think one of the things that we found in this study that that involvement with cyberbullying was associated with problematic social media use. And that means that when kids are on it a lot or have a desire or a need to be on it a lot, they, they are more at risk for being involved in cyberbullying, either as perpetrating or as, as being victimized by it. And I think part of that comes from their fear of missing out, you know, like, so they want to be involved, they want to know what's happening. And when they're not involved then and know what's happening, then it becomes more of a problem for them. And also the more that you're on it, the more likely you're be to exposed to negative things and the more likely you are to have negative things happen to you. And of course, in the middle of lockdown, as we are in Britain, I mean, I'm inundated with parents asking me about how on earth can they get their teenager off social media? They seem to be on it all the time. And this is a great sort of, you know, preoccupation of parents. It certainly is. And we have the same in Canada. And one of the things that I talk a lot about with parents is, you know, in terms of dealing with that, there's no app for it. How do we support kids being online and being on safely? We support them by implementing positive parenting skills. So let's, one, help them develop the the social media digital literacy skills that will allow them to go on social media and make good decisions about what's safe and what's not safe. The second thing that we can do as parents is build relationship skills with them. If they have relationship skills in face-to-face, like social skills, conflict resolution, communication skills, then they're going to implement those online. So we can coach them, we can scaffold them, we can educate them in those kinds of things. And then the third thing that I talk a lot about with parents is create boundaries around being on, on social media. So there's no social media when we're eating dinner. We're going to have quality time together. And in that time together, we're going to do these things. One of the things that's extraordinary, I think, there seems to be such differentiation between boys and girls' use. You know, we see in this country in particular, we've seen girls' self-esteem is lower than boys. They are intensely using social media, using it in different ways to the boys and potentially being disproportionately negatively affected. Yeah, and if I could add, that's very consistent with what we found in this this international analysis. There were 42 countries and consistently across the countries, we found this gendered phenomenon where where girls are being victimized much more often than boys. And girls are actually engaged in some of these problematic social media habits much more than boys. So we don't know really what causes that, but it's certainly a phenomenon. And did your survey look at anything to do with sort of cultural factors? I mean, you've looked across, you've got that sort of cross-country analysis, because obviously in this country, for example, young women are exposed to a very, you know, a culture that sort of promotes that self-objectification. It's very perfectionistic. Everything's curated to be perfect on social media. And that's certainly something of great concern here. And the Children's Commissioner a couple of years ago did some research showing that British young people are much more concerned about their looks than other children in the rest of Europe, for example, and that there is this dependency on likes within social media. Is that something that you feel is ubiquitous as well? 
that that's sort of going beyond the data that we have. The survey documents the behaviors, but maybe doesn't get at the deep roots behind the behavior. So we'd have to go beyond our, our survey to to um, get at this, those sorts of explanations. I'm not sure, Wendy, in your, your clinical background, if you have observations. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we didn't assess this in the survey, but I think what's striking across the survey is the consistency of the findings across countries. So that although there are probably cultural differences in some of those things, the universal associations are quite clear that, you know, problematic social media use increases with age, particularly for girls, that the intensity of use increases with age for both boys and girls, and, you know, access to stranger increases with age for both boys and girls. And now social media is meant to be for children over the age of 13. Did your survey highlight that maybe parents are giving in a little bit earlier to allowing younger children access to it? I haven't got the figures right in front of front of us, but yes, uh, our survey goes down to young people as, as young as sort of 11 years of age. And certainly substantial proportions of them across the countries are are on, are on their devices an awful lot and um, are on social media an awful lot. So, yes. In Canada, other research has shown that we have a really high access to cell phones so that 25% of children in grade four, which is about nine years old, have their own cell phone in Canada. And Wendy, what's your sort of view of that as a clinical psychologist? You know, because we have a, you know, we do have a big issue in terms of parental resilience to that sort of peer pressure from other parents. You know, there's expectation that children on entry to senior school when they're 11, 12 should absolutely have a phone that has become a cultural norm here. Yeah. So I I think this is where I go back to. It's about parenting skills. You know, I I think a lot about making this the equivalent to, you know, when we, we send kids to school or we teach them how to cross the street, we just don't send them out the door and say, go. What do we do is we we give them the skills that they need to, you know, stop, look both ways for cars, make sure it's clear and cross the street. We have to do that same kind of safety protection when we're teaching kids to go online. So, you know, I think that we need to start early, develop the skills that they need in order to go online safely and scaffold them. And as they gain the skills, they can become more independent and more autonomous online. So I think the message to parents is, look, you know, social media use isn't going to go away. It's here to stay. What we need to do as parents is take on teaching them the skills and not assume that they're just going to learn it. And in fact, I would be very worried if we just let kids learn how to be online safely. We need to be actively involved in coaching them how to do it safely. Now, before we move on to a bigger discussion about bullying and cyberbullying, can each of you say which part of the survey results kind of surprised you or intrigued you more than other areas of it? What sort of sticks out in each of your mind? Maybe, William, if you go first. Sure. First of all, the opportunity to work with reports from young people from such a a large number of countries and diversity of cultures and settings. I, I, I'm always sort of amazed by that that opportunity. But what strikes me is the consistency we find in the relationships that we study. So the ubiquitous nature of social media use, the the relationships that we see with some of these negative health outcomes, how consistent things are, and that the world for children isn't 
defined by country boundaries anymore. It's a much more global thing. So that surprises me constantly. Fascinating. And what about you, Wendy? I, I think one of the things that, that struck me is the, the finding that perpetration increased with age. So perpetration of cyberbullying increased with age. That's the complete opposite of what we find in terms of other forms of bullying. We generally find that physical bullying or that social or relational bullying where we kids keep kids out of groups. So offline bullying decreases with age. So I think for me, there's probably a really interesting question about is bullying getting transferred online from in person as kids grow older? And we need to do longitudinal research to really understand and unpack that. And of course, cyberbullying is constant access. You know, the person who pushes you in the playground can suddenly find you in the middle of the night on your phone, you know. So it's, as you say, it's, 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 a, it's frightening that I think in one of your talks, Wendy, you talk about this paper cut, you know, this repetition of exposure to trauma that comes from cyberbullying. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, you know, one of the characteristics of bullying in the traditional definition is, has to, is that it has to be repeated over time. But in the case of cyber, once it's happened, it's online, it's there forever, it's permanent, and children and youth have access to it for 24 hours a day. So that's why it feels like a paper cut, because what you find is often young people go back and revisit that post that was so hurtful. And so it's it's like they repeatedly re-victimize themselves and go back and see it and read it over and over. And I think that's why we find the negative effects that are associated with cyberbullying are even greater than those that are associated with face-to-face bullying. And yet, I think for many people, it just seems like something, you ca- it's just part and parcel of everyday life. I think it's just been assumed that children should put up with it in, in many contexts. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think that's, that's something that we really need to deal with as a society. I think that we, uh, your country has been leading the way in terms of the rights of children online. And every child has the right to be safe, whether they're online or offline. And that we now have a huge body of evidence that clearly indicates that being exposed or engaging in cyberbullying is associated with with long-term negative effects. So I think cyberbullying, it's not just something that kids grow out of. Kids grow into more significant problems. And so I think it really beholds us to, to address it and ensure that kids are safe everywhere they go. So you've mentioned the long-term impact of cyberbullying, but it's actually quite extraordinary to read that children can experience things like post-traumatic stress disorder from cyberbullying, not just anxiety and depression, but quite significant psychological harm. I'm going to add, Wendy, uh, we really haven't studied in this particular analysis the sort of psychological impact of it, but lots of other research within our HBSC network and elsewhere has documented the signs and symptoms of emotional problems that comes with this. And it's so consistent and ubiquitous too. And can we talk about the perpetrator, the characteristics or typology of the child or teenager who would be the the cyber bully for a moment, Wendy? Yeah. So other research, not this particular research, has demonstrated that kids who engage in cyberbullying have learned to use power and aggression in their relationships. So they have a history of bullying others. There's continuity between those who bully face-to-face and those who bully online. And 
We know that some longitudinal research is now showing that they tend to go on, a small minority of them, to bully in their workplaces. So this is a pat- it's a developmental pattern of behavior where children are learning to use power and aggression effectively with their peers to gain access to resources or what they want, and it's reinforcing them. And so they tend to then transfer it to their romantic partners later in life, and then they tend to transfer it into their workplace, some of them later in life. And one of the great challenges, of course, you know, with smartphone use is parents can't really see or don't choose to see what their child is doing or how they're interacting with other people online. So they're not there to say that was a very rude thing to say or you shouldn't speak like that. And it's sort of an unregulated space. And if I could add unregulated in terms of the anonymity of the child that decides to perpetrate things they can they can hide behind their screens as opposed to a face to face encounter and i think that that's that's an important element of this and i also think that in terms of that issue of being unsupervised we know that in face to face bullying when adults are present there's less bullying so this really makes us begin to think about how can we support youth being online and yet give them the autonomy and independence And so I'm going to come back to my message about if we start early and we monitor our child online when they're first going online, we provide them feedback about the kinds of behaviors and the kinds of things that they're saying, and we provide them with opportunities to practice those things, then as they develop the skills, we let them go and they have more autonomy. So I think it's a really important thing developmentally, that we start early. We acknowledge that being online is going to be part of children's lives, and we start early to educate and socialize and scaffold them to have positive skills. And of course, the importance of digital literacy, you know, as you know, Wendy, you know, making sure that they're able to question and think about and just broaden their thinking when it comes to what they're looking at or reading online and being much more of a critical consumer. Absolutely. That's really important. And I think the other thing about being online, and it it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but, you know, as a parent who's trying to support children, they can bring those messages. If parents have created a positive, healthy communication channel with their, their children, they can bring the messages that they might be concerned about to the parent. And the parent can help problem solve how to address it and how to move forward through it. So I think it's not only coaching and scaffolding our kids to be safe online, but it's also creating that relationship that will enable the children to come to adults in their lives to tell them what's happening or what's distressed them. Because we know kids tend not to come to adults to let them know what's happening online. So we really need to create those relationships. Just returning briefly to your survey that you conducted um, and wrote about together, a few questions. Did you gather any parental views on the social media use that you documented? And was there any relationship between age of sort of onset using social media and consequences beyond that, if that makes sense? Both terrific questions. Uh to, to, to really have a full picture of what's going on, you would need to actually understand views of the parents, views of the educational community around children. This is just a survey of children and their views. We have a little bit of information on the climate in the house from the perspective or the child, but we don't have that sort of full holistic picture you're talking about. 
And another interesting thing I'd love to ask is I'm aware of research being done by Tracy Wade, Professor Tracy Wade in Australia, who's been on this podcast as well. And she has been doing research on the relationship between particular social media apps and disordered eating thoughts and behaviors. And I just wondered if there was anything that comes out of your research about particular apps or would give you an indication of where further research is required per particular app? I think that's really valuable research and a really important question to ask. We did not look at specific apps. We were more looking at time spent, the frequency of use, the need to be online and whom they were interacting with online. But looking at the apps is really important. One of the big challenges in this field in terms of the research is, you know, as soon as we start doing the research on a specific type of app, they've moved to a new app. So I think it's really important to do that work and get it out as quickly as possible, because likely the patterns are the same across some apps, but we need to know more work. Wendy, one of the things that I've noticed from that research is about boys. I think they seem to be a little bit more likely to interact with strangers online. Is that accurate? In this study, we actually found the same, that boys were more likely to interact with strangers online, and that increased with age for actually both boys and girls. And I think the research is showing that boys are more likely to go online and engage in gaming. And within those gaming apps, they're more likely to meet strangers. Right. Okay, great. It's quite intuitive why that would be the case. The other thing I wanted to say is that with regard to the issue of sexting, I know this is beyond the survey, but I have to mention it because I was watching one of your talks, Wendy, recently. And I think there's something fascinating again about sexting because it, it highlights the need for digital literacy and digital hygiene again. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in that regard? Well, actually, currently we have a a study that's ongoing and we're looking at sexting in the time of COVID and how it relates to relationships. And one of the things that we're starting to find is that there's been a huge increase in sexting among young people who are aged 14 to 18 during COVID. And so it might be a way that they're engaging in intimacy or with their romantic partner when they can't have physical relationships with them or they can't physically be with them. And so I think we really need to look at sexting to a certain extent. Many young people engage in sexting kinds of behaviors. There's quite a wide variation in terms of the frequency. So there might be a continuum. And I think people are just starting to research and look at this, but there might be a continuum between what's healthy and unhealthy sexting. And we really have to look more into that to understand the behavior. But again, you know, social media and and access to phones and phones that can take pictures have really enabled an increase in this kind of behavior or as a way of connecting with others. And I think it's always fascinating. I, you know, you made a point earlier. I mean, something I'm always saying to parents is often what is best for children is completely counterintuitive, <laughs> you know, so telling them it's illegal sexting doesn't work, does it? You know, to, banning it or it just doesn't have the impact. It seems, as, as you've suggested elsewhere, that a harm reduction approach is best. And, and it is about cultivating that dialogue and culture of open discussion at home. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think harm reduction is the way to go and to address it. But again, it's really new research and we need to know so much more about it. 
Wendy's life work has been on understanding the development of healthy relationships and, and, and trust. And if things are too punitive, the, the behavior is banned or you can't do it, that's not going to work, like you say, Kathy. Do you both feel that parents struggle in this generation to be more authoritative in general, based on, you know, the real pressures and challenges. You know, my parents didn't have, we didn't have access to the internet. We didn't have to have phones. Parents these days have a lot of big decisions to make and it can be very difficult. And it seems to be that to be authoritative in this space can be quite challenging for parents. Well, we know that research shows that parents that kind of balance that sort of supportive and and caring, but yet set boundaries is a type of a parenting style that leads to more positive outcomes. So I think we have to find that balance between how do we monitor and set appropriate boundaries and support our children, and yet still let them and enable them to develop the, the, the autonomy and the independence that they need. And so I think it's really a balance. And I don't think that challenge for parents has really changed over the ages. I don't know that there's research that's that's looked at that. But I think, you know, parenting is is challenging and it is stressful. But I think we at different times are fa- have in different decades have been faced with different kinds of challenges. But what works in terms of parenting and what works in terms of relating to having positive outcomes hasn't really changed over time. And did the work that you did together, William, did it look at time of when young people were accessing social media? So we have a big issue in this country. I think 45% of 8 to 11-year-olds have a smartphone in the bed at night. Did you look at context when you were doing the survey? The questions didn't do that. However, we do ask questions about sleep habits. And we've seen, I would say, remarkable shifts in the times that young people are going to bed, being up at night with their devices, having fractionated sleep because of it, and the the health effects of that are pretty obvious. So I think that's a, it's a much larger issue than just the use of the social media. And Wendy, what would you add to that? As, as William's indicated, there's so much going on in the context of a child's life with it, where they just pick up a phone. It's not just about social media per se, is it? No, it's not just about social media. You know, it, it's interesting because there's some research that also shows that if kids are going to access help, they're more likely to do it in the night in the privacy of their own home online. So on the one hand, having the the phone in your bedroom is problematic in terms of your physical health, in terms of your sleep, in terms of the light that you get exposed to. But on the other hand, it's a time that when kids may be worrying and stressing out about the things that are going on in their day-to-day life, that they may go and access things like easings, things like helplines in the privacy of their room. So it is a really mixed bag, but I think all in all, it's okay to set boundaries and limitations around when to use it and how to use it. And one of those just might be that we're going to leave the phone downstairs at night when people are sleeping. Yeah, that's definitely a tough one. I think over lockdown, you know, a lot of families just feel like they've had to drop the ball on a lot of these normally authoritative rules. Anecdotally, 
what I've observed during the lockdown, especially amongst the older teens and university students, is is the the dramatic shift. They're living their lives through through the night, and maybe maybe that's a way of distancing themselves from adults and parents, but flipping their cycles. And what a challenge! What a challenge for communication and families. What a challenge for for their health. Absolutely, you know, it's an unprecedented pressure on you know young adolescent development, isn't it? And when there's a hiatus in their ability to form that kind of a social and personal identity, they can't interact normally. Suddenly, they are becoming curators of their own identity in that digital space. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Our COVID data is showing that, you know, it's not just kids that are online more, it's adults as well, that generally there's been an increase in the use of social media. And it might be, you know, in part because you're all together in one place and it's a way of distancing yourself. But it's also an interesting time in the sense that kids are spending more time with families during the lockdown, right? So rather than going like, what would, what do we normally see in adolescence? Kids are out with their friends and doing things with their, their friends, but now they're in their houses with their parents and their siblings, and their only access to friends and romantic partners is online. So it's a really interesting shift in thinking about what are going to be the changes in these family patterns as, and in friendship patterns for this group of young people? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And a lot of families are in touch with me to say how fantastic it's going. You know, they're bonding with their 15-year-old, you know, who has to play with tennis with them in the garden because there's no one else to play with. You know, there are a lot of opportunities to be proactively positive, uh, I think, through lockdown as well. And I think that's the message about social media. I mean, I think in this time, there, that that's also the shift that's happening is, you know, at a more cultural level that we're, you know, social media isn't just all evil, that there are many positives that are associated with it. And there are many things that young people and adults can do online. They can, they can find groups of similar people to connect with. They can use it as a way of learning and and engaging in the world and the news. So I think that one of the things that is happening in COVID is that we're starting to recognize some of the benefits. And maybe that's where we need to also equally study what are the benefits of being online, especially during these times. So I think post-pandemic, it will be, and I like that term, let's hope it comes post-pandemic, that period of time. But it looks like there's going to be a big recalibration. You know, we're adaptively coping at the moment. Everybody's doing their best. You know, they're, they're all trying to stay in touch with their friends online. Everybody else is trying to balance work and home, et cetera, et cetera. But there will be a period of recalibration after this experience where we may be able to reflect on the benefits of digital technology a little bit more, but also we've come to value social connection in a way that we'd never appreciated potentially. I think that's extremely well said. And Wendy, tell me a little bit about when your study on lockdown and sexting, when can we see the results of some of that work that you've just mentioned? Well, we're, we're, we're currently doing the write-ups and, and submitting it for publication to sort of these rapid journals. So we're, we're hoping that within the next six months, it will be published and, and we'll be able to talk about it once it's more published and, and out and been peer-reviewed. Fantastic. And William, tell me a little bit more about when the next reiteration of the HBSC study will be out. Is that in a few years? 
So we do it every four years, and it's it. We are meant to be in the field in the fall, and it's a big question for the whole network whether that's actually going to be possible because it typically involves us accessing going into school classrooms, and the network hasn't decided, but it'll be in the next couple of years, you know, God willing that COVID settles down. Well, that's going to be an absolutely fascinating report, isn't it? <laughs> the post-pandemic survey results. Yeah, we may see spikes in lots of things and declines in others, but I guess we'll wait and see. Well, listen, thank you so much for all your valuable work in this area. You know, I follow what you're doing online and I, I just think it's brilliant. So thank you so much for all of your great contributions. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.